0: This episode is brought to you by Buyers Agency Australia.
1: So from that perspective, uh, the temptation is to to do residential lending which is uh, I guess one of the three different ways to fund. Uh, So you've got residential, commercial and other people's money. They're the three different ways to fund.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Toran Sham, and in this special episode, we're speaking with Rob Flux from Property Developer Network. He dissects the pros and cons of commercial and residential lending, joint ventures and private loans. Plus, in sharing his insights, he gives a sneak peek into what went through his mind when he started and the importance of putting things into perspective. With over 30 stages in a development, they're not easy for any developer. Some stages are more difficult than others and Flux has noticed that there are two main criteria that developers often struggle with, they come down to the two Fs, finding the deal and funding the deal.
1: Today, we're going to talk about all the issues and challenges in that funding space. Um, We're going to talk about uh, what I call my rules of three. uh, And there are, I guess, many, many rules of three that actually sit in there uh, that are nice and easy and catchy for people to actually remember. uh, And how someone's journey is going to change from an entry-level developer through to I guess a, I guess a more professional developer at the, that's going full-time and pro and how the way you fund changes along the way.
0: This is what I love about it is because I think this is a key component about any developments. In order to be able to do a development successfully, um, you've got to be able to get funding for it and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to fund it all. You know, I think that's something we'll talk about a little bit later on as part of some of the beliefs and so forth but i think one of the key things is you know how do you actually go about finding funds to be able to do, find a deal to be able to develop because the thing is once you've got a great deal and it stacks up really well and the feasibility is good you go okay you know it could cost you millions of dollars but no one has literally millions of dollars to be able to sit there and, and put into this if everyone did then everyone would be doing development
1: well some do but most of us have i guess uh i guess limited resources in actually coming in here uh and so i, I guess a uh a parable of mine or a catchphrase, um, don't let your lack of resources stop you from being resourceful, right? So, it's about understanding the constraints of the deal, understanding your first, your own personal constraints, and then being able to negotiate, uh, I guess, how to avoid some of those issues along the way, Um, which, you know, so when we start to think about those resources, they change from different stages of the project, uh, which really comes into the first rule of three, which is there are three stages to do the funding, right? Most people don't uh, think about it. They think more about uh, just the point of acquisition, but the point of acquisition gets you a certain, uh, certain way through the project that allows you to do all of your development applications, etc., cetera, and get your approvals, but then you transition into stage two, which is the construction phase. Now, quite often, getting that construction phase, the kinds of finance that you actually need at that point are very different to the kind of finance that you want at the acquisition stage. Um, and we'll dive into those a little bit deeper, I guess, as we as we go through this. Um, but then the third stage is, well, what if you want to retain some stock at the end, Uh, You want to pay back the construction loan and then refinance that into a long-term buy and hold type strategy. So, as you go through those three different stages, you're going to need different kinds of finance along the way. And so, you need to be thinking about the end-to-end process, not just stage one acquisition where most people people get stuck, to be honest.
0: Yeah. And that's where people usually start because they don't realize, okay, there's the other parts of their... I mean, it's really good that you've raised about the last one, um, basically getting a refinance of retained stock. I'd be asking the question: Is can't you just go out to any bank and say, "By the way, I've got this, you know, new property. Can't you just give me lending or finance against that? Is it as simple as that, or is it a lot more?
1: <laughs> if we start with that end goal of the refinance of the you're back to a residential lending type scenario. Uh, whereas in the middle stages, you might be using, uh, I guess, a more commercial style. Uh, and we will talk to that a little bit later. So when you're in that residential space, you need to demonstrate your serviceability, okay? So can you afford to to, to fund any shortfall of any rental income or anything like that that might actually happen on the property? Uh, and that then becomes a, I guess, a potential limiting factor if you then want to go on and do project number two, project number three, because now you've got this debt sitting over your head. So there's some big decisions that need to be made as to can I keep my stock or should I keep my stock? Because you might be able to, but that might be a handbrake to stop you doing deal number two. Or do you start to think about you collapse that down, roll the cash over, Get the cash out and then go and do the next project, which might be slightly bigger, right? So uh, you know, if if we get our deal big enough, we can we can keep it owned outright. But you know, if we if we try to keep it too early, sometimes that's the thing that is the handbrake that stops us.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So, I guess we'll, we'll just say it again, there's three different types of stages or three stages of funding. We've got the acquisition phase, the construction phase and the refinance of retained stock or residual stock as they also call it as well. So, let's break it down a little bit just to let people understand what is this first stage of acquisition? What does that relate to in the development?
1: Well, you're picking up the raw site at this particular point in time. So, might be an existing house, it might be, uh, I guess, a large parcel of land that you might want to subdivide. But typically, it's only got one dwelling that's sitting on there. Okay, so uh, it has not got development approvals in most instances. So it is, uh, for all intensive purposes, looks like a house smells like a house. It's a house. Uh, So from that perspective, uh, the temptation is to do residential lending, which is, uh, I guess, one of the three different ways to fund. Uh, So, you've got residential, commercial, and other people's money. They're the three different ways to fund. Um, But when you do that, then obviously your own uh, financial circumstances need to be taken in with regards to can you afford the loan? Is there any rent generation from the property? You know, paying interest along the way, those sorts of things. And so, there's some handbrakes in that that uh, when we dive into... I guess the detail of I guess that resi space and some of the limitations uh, we can flesh out you know the the pros and the cons of residential lending and we can measure that against commercial a little bit later in the process.
0: It's really interesting because it's something we need to think about because say for example you're going to development site and your intentions is to buy this, do development on it and then eventually say let's sell it and if you can hold on to a few that'll be great But if you don't think about this initially up front with the financial side of things to actually see how you fund it, you could actually get yourself in a bit of a, as you said, a handbrake situation where you go down the residential path to get a loan and you get that approved and then you realize, hold on, you know, I can't actually do any more because I'm stuck because I can't get construction finance down the track. So, it's actually quite important before you even start getting the site, you've got to actually think about how you're going to fund it.
1: Start with the end in mind, mate. So, if you know what the outcome is, then that will inform what your first step in the process should be and how do you actually move towards that. Uh, In many instances, people just go for, well, this is all I know. All I know is how to do residential so that they then do that and then all of a sudden uh, that becomes, I guess, a bottleneck for future stages or, you know, they struggle with the serviceability to get there and they wonder how everyone else is doing deals, but they can't, right? Uh, So we want to kind of bust apart a number of those myths and give some people the tools to say look there's there's more more than one way to to skin a cat um, uh, you know so long as the cat's dead
0: well we won't go into too much details about that one but
1: <laughs> no cats were harmed in the, in the making of this podcast
0: <laughs> so the next part the stage I guess is the construction let's say we've acquired the property we've got construction oh, so we've got um say commercial finance for that let's talk a little bit about what construction finance or construction stage looks like
1: well the construction stage uh starts to be the i guess the the litmus test as to how you need to actually fund the the construction element based on how many dwellings are actually in there so if you have uh only three dwellings that you're actually constructing three or less then it's relatively easy to use residential finance to do that subject to you having serviceability. If you get to four or more dwellings, then the residential funding model changes significantly um, and they make that very difficult to do because of the risk position of the bank. Uh, And instead, they want you to go to more commercial-style lending where they're looking at more short-term nature uh, in in that space. And so the rules that you lend under change massively uh, in that process.
0: What's some examples of of that like compared say residential compared to uh, commercial? I mean you've mentioned the serviceability is key for residential which when you jump to commercial, is that still a factor?
1: Let's look at uh, a typical early stage developer might be doing a one into two subdivision or a duplex as their starting entry project. Okay. in that instance, they go: Have I got the twenty percent deposit? Um, have I got the service ability to firstly acquire the land in the first place? Can I service the peak debt um, from an interest rate perspective uh, to say what it's going to be uh, fully constructed? And as part of that, the bank would say: Well, what is the anticipated rent of that finished product actually going to be? Okay, so they they look at all of those factors and they say: Well, fair enough, it looks like. At the end of this, you're going to have a debt of, let's just say, $3 million as a as a number. Can you service that based on the rent that, they, that those two dwellings are going to create? Okay. Uh, in many instances, people find they can't, right? Uh, and so that that then starts to create a situation where the bank uh, won't lend under that scenario to, to start with. Um, and so then people start using... Uh, I guess, well, what if I sell one down and the profit of that, I'll roll over to, uh, you know, pay down the other one. And the bank goes, hang on profit. You didn't mention anything about profit. You didn't mention that you were being a developer Uh, because residential lending, the banks are looking for 20 or 30 year loans. They're, they're, They're wanting to drip feed their money for a very long period of time on a low risk proposition. Whereas what you're proposing to them is a high-risk proposition uh, where you're trying to speculate on the sale of that finished product at the end. And that product was never designed to do that. And so the banks kind of as soon as they get to that three number, that just triggers alarm bells for them that uh, hey, the likelihood is that you are a developer, and because of that likelihood, we're gonna we're gonna put a lot more scrutiny into that process. And we're going to assess the deal in a very, very different way. And the, the, the commercial side of things is that, is that different way. Um, the, before, I guess, going into the full comparison of those, though, there's probably another rule of three that we've missed that if we go back to that, it'll probably fill the gap here to, for people to actually understand. So, there's, there's three amounts of money that are actually needed to run any deal right? So there's the deposit to purchase the property, there's any serviceability to fund the debt, right? And then there's the liquid cash in order to run the deal. And so whenever you're going to go into a deal, you need to be looking at all three of those elements at all three of the stages of funding. So uh, for the acquisition, the construction and the refinance of the finished stock. So you need to apply that test across everything and when you start to do that, you'll see where the residential lending model starts to break, and you'll start to see where the commercial model starts to come into play, uh, and then that then starts to go. Well, have I got the and have I got all the solutions to each and every one of them, or is there still a shortfall? And then I guess funding model three starts to come in, which is other people's money, right? Uh, so the the biggest challenge is that most people don't think about that end-to-end solution, thinking about all three stages, thinking about all those three different models of, uh, sorry, modes of money that they need. Uh, and because they've not thought about it end-to-end, they get halfway into the project and they get stuck. Uh, and so it's, you know, planning uh, is really the key to then understanding, well, which funding model is actually gonna work.
0: And, and the banks or any commercial lender will look at your feasibility. That's the, that's the key thing. Once you flip over to start getting commercial lending and commercial financing. Then they'll go okay, show us your feasibility. How did you calculate these? How did you have to come up with this? And you know, as you mentioned, there's three types of amounts. There's a deposit, there's a serviceability and you know, obviously cash to be able to run the deal to be able to service. So you can actually keep you know paying your builders and contractors and whoever else that you need to actually do the project with as well. Which is really, really key I think in, in this aspect because that kind of really ties in really well Maybe just for the listeners out there, we've talked a lot about sort of um, facts and, and theory stuff at the moment, but let's maybe run a scenario for them. Yeah. If you've got one that you can talk about, um, I guess, applying these kind of three amounts and, and also to how we can actually look at it. Maybe like, maybe let's just start off with like a four pack or something like that, four pack townhouse.
1: Uh, happy to go through this scenario. There's a couple of pros and cons that might help paint that scenario better, because then when we go through the scenario i can go see where it triggered that particular problem and then everyone go oh okay i can got that a little bit better so so the pros and cons of residential so if we just look at residential lending everyone's used to it okay uh we've been indoctrinated into this uh over many many years so everybody's familiar with how the model works uh the perception is it's a very low interest rate and because it's a very low interest rate it's super cheap and so is the easiest sorry is the the likely most profitable way out of the deal. So that's that's the pro. The con is that the banks aren't intending it to be used for what we want to. And when we start to do things like uh, knock the house down, uh, take away their security, uh, remove the the rental income that starts to come through. The bank starts to get alarm bells and go, "Hey, hang on that wasn't our deal. Uh, you never told us that was actually going to happen." Uh, and so the banks are very aware of the fact that people, I guess, uh, are telling half truths when they when they're applying for residential lending for development purposes, uh, and so they look for little idiosyncrasies in the contracts. Uh, so it might be a due diligence clause. A due diligence clause instantly triggers the bank to go. Hang on, little little hairs on the back of their neck start to uh, to trigger and go. Why would you need due diligence uh, unless you're intending to do something with that? Um, they look for the name of the entity under which you purchased it. Uh, you know, if it's um, if it's Rob Developments Proprietary Limited, then the word developments is probably the key to
0: that. pretty obvious
1: don't do that (laughs) like uh you know so so they're looking for those little subtle clues that say what is it that is actually uh there they'll send valuers in to assess the property and they'll see whether or not there has been a development application already lodged against the property and go hang on this has development potential what are the purposes they're actually going to do it under so there's a whole bunch of scrutiny that happens that most people just don't have visibility on.
0: Especially, you know, if you buy, say for example, two blocks side by side, that's an obvious giveaway. Or if you're buying a big block of land and, you know, you've got plenty of land at the back that is potentially subdividable, that's also another giveaway. So, it, it, they're not that dumb, you know, to be honest. I think the banks have figured it out after.
1: Let's say they are actually quite clever and uh, they're onto us, folks. So, don't don't be trying to do that.
0: Coming up after the break, we delve into the big questions that can cause you to hit a glass ceiling.
1: And they apply a a weighting and a factor against that to say, well, what happens if the interest rate goes up? What happens if the property is vacant? What happens if...
0: How to utilize other people's money in a way that benefits both parties?
1: But at a very high level, okay, the other people's money is going to come into a couple of very basic, um, I guess, genres.
0: He explains why interest rates aren't the be-all and end-all.
1: And I think a lot of people see the interest rate at 20% and go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? That's ridiculous.
0: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. (music) Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals? Or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyers agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off market deals for his clients. Now he's offering you a no obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code. BAA with your name and email address to 0405105074 to get your no obligation free 45-minute strategy call. In his years of scrutinizing all the aspects to lending, Flux has observed some of the downsides. When it comes to residential lending, one of those is a specific mindset that some people adopt.
1: The other negative to the residential lending is, is the mindset that we have coming in that, that, that we always want to do it with our own cash, right? So I want all the profit for me. And because of that, that tends to, I guess, breed out, well, have I got the serviceability? Am I in a job that actually has enough to do that? Um, do I have a large enough deposit to actually fund the deal? So when you're going in for residential, we look at those three things, right? So the deposit to, to purchase, Typically, that's 20% of the purchase price. The serviceability, they look at your assets, sorry, they look at your assets and liabilities, they look at your income streams, they look at any revenue you've got from shares and rents for other things, they look at the rent that's gonna happen for the property and they apply a a weighting and a factor against that to say, well, what happens if the interest rate goes up? What happens if the property is vacant? What happens if, so they apply all these weightings, so the, the actual cash that you've got ends up being a subset of the amount of money that they actually lend you. So you, you hit this glass ceiling on deal size. So that's the the biggest problem with residential is is that glass ceiling. You you are capped out. You're capped out in how much you can borrow based on you on what you are earning. And you're capped out on uh I guess the size of the deal because they limit it to that three uh, that three lots. Uh And so at that point, residential starts to kind of break, right? Um, And a lot of people struggle to get in because they can't come up with the the deposit or the serviceability um, uh, in that process. So that's when the commercial model starts to come into play. So the commercial model then starts to say, well, we don't care so much about your serviceability. So when we look at those three things, the serviceability part just disappears. And instead they say, What we want to do is make sure that the deal is actually a good deal, right? Now, if the deal is actually a good deal, we are with full knowledge and consent, we're not coming in on this 30-year loan arrangement where you're you know, telling porky pies to us, but we're coming on on a 12-month loan or a two-year loan where we are understanding that there is a risk to this, a commercial risk. We're factoring that into our interest rates um, that we're charging because we're only getting uh, I guess it's you know a, a large amount of money but in a very small period of time uh, and the other thing is they say well given the risk we want that deposit that you needed we need that to be larger because we want we will only lend you money when when the bank is not actually exposed to risk so what they're trying to do is is put a buffer between the I guess the profit uh, being lost in the deal so then the developer starts to lose some of their security money or their deposit money um, before the bank actually loses its money because the bank will only ever lend us money when they prove that that, that that we don't need it.
0: And that's the reason why you look at the banks when they do commercial, you'll typically see that commercial um, LVRs or loan to value ratios is lower, you know. We typically know and this, this can change in the market is that residential is about 80% LVR whereas we go with commercial starts from anywhere between 50 anywhere up to say 65-70% at most. Depending on the commercial deal, so now we understand why.
1: That's of what they call total development cost. Okay, so they so they they're lending that, and they change the the terminology. So that what we called deposit before, the terminology changes when it goes into commercial, and they they call it equity, right? So they're wanting typically about thirty percent equity of the of the the total development cost actually covered by your cash in some way, shape or form. Now, if you can do that, then at that point, they will say, Well, if the deal is a deal, we'll lend you the money. Right? Now, the, the bonus from a commercial perspective over residential is residential, you need to pay the interest every single month. Whereas commercial says, Look, we understand that this is a high cash flow type deal um we are not expecting you to pay the interest every month what we're going to do is we're going to capitalize the interest meaning we're going to push the interest to the back of the loan and you're going to pay us all the interest at the end when you sell the finished product uh over and over and above so effectively you're paying interest for day one adds to the end then month two adds to the end month three adds to the end you end up paying interest on interest because of that but you didn't have to cash flow any of it so from a benefits perspective that the cash flow is cash flow is king so if you can improve your cash flow situation then you can potentially run more deals than you would uh, in any other circumstances
0: so Rob just to get my head around some of the sort of numbers around this so let's say for example total development cost um, for listeners out there who might not know what that means what does that represent it's
1: the accumulation of everything that they call a hard cost. So there are hard costs and soft costs in a project. So a hard cost is cash that is payable today, right? So purchasing the property, payable today. Stamp duty and purchasing, payable today. Uh, Consultants along the way, payable today. There are soft costs that are payable in the future. So for example, when you sell the property, there is going to be an agent's commission, but that is offset by the revenue coming in. That's a soft cost. So it's a cost of the project, but it's not... You know, it's you don't have to cash flow it up front because it's funded by the the revenue coming in. So, so the total development cost is the accumulation of all those hard costs to say, what do I actually have to cash flow to get this deal done?
0: Yep. So, which that also includes, say, for example, construction costs, you know, what you got to pay the builder to all that and you get to the end, you got this figure. Say, for example, you bought the site for a million dollars and it's going to cost I don't know two million dollars, and your profit might be say six million. I'm just making some random numbers up here.
1: They are very random. Uh, that's a, that's a killer deal, mate. I'd love to, I'd love that deal.
0: I'm thinking about it right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess your soft cost your soft cost, like your, your total development costs would be say the one mil plus the two mil, which is three mil, and that's your total development costs. Now, when you said about um, the banks or the you know lender would lend against that, do they lend at a certain value? of that total development cost or do they lend against the actual property value?
1: Each uh, funder will do a slightly different approach, but the answer ends up being very, very similar, okay? So some of them will lend against the total development cost uh, and some of them will measure against what they call GRV, the gross realized value, which is the value of the finished product
0: at the end. Which is why I said it was about six mil, (laughs) I'd say that.
1: (laughs) If it's against, total development cost, then they might only want a 30% of total development cost as equity. If it's gross realized value, then they might want 40 or 45%, for example, of the GRV, which I guess by the time you subtract your profit, you subtract your soft costs, then you start eating into things, it ends up being what the, the actual cash that they lend you ends up being very, very similar. Right? So. Each bank does that assessment slightly differently. But the rule of one of the rules of three that I've got is if you've got uh, approximately one third of your total development costs um, uh, as cash or equity, um, that would typically service most loans.
0: Yeah, that's very, very good. It's a very handy tip there, I guess. Um, Yeah, because I mean, we won't delve into too much more because it gets very, very, uh, yeah lots of little details, mining details. But I think this is something that you'd have to sit down and review and, and learn from feasibilities and all that. But I think we wanted to sort of just touch on high level and it's important to kind of understand that. So we kind of talked about pretty much the, I guess the way of what funds need to be and you know the, the types of amounts related. One thing I guess we wanted to sort of also touch on because we've talked about residential commercial is the next one is probably other people's money. So say for example, you've gone down those two paths And you realize hold on, I can't really quite get commercial ending because it just doesn't stack up. Where would you get money for this deal if it's really good? You know, like this example I just shared with you.
1: (laughs) So, you've got a shortfall. So, whichever whichever approach you want to go down, you've got a shortfall. Or in some instances, you've actually got no money at all, right? And so, you're going to go, well, how do I do this when I've got no or low money? And so other people's money starts to come into play. And there's lots of different ways that you can actually, uh, I guess, deal with other people's money. Um, You know, there are a number of ways that you can profit from a project when you've got little to no money uh, in the process um, by controlling the property in some way, shape or form. But that's probably an entire episode in itself. Um, Correct. Correct. But, but at a very high level, okay, the other people's money is going to come into a couple of very basic, um, I guess, genres. So one is a joint venture where you don't have the cash, but someone else has the cash. Okay. Uh, so that might be a money partner where you go arm in arm, they fund the deal, you run the deal. That's a nice, simple, easy joint venture. Okay. Okay. Uh, Another kind of joint venture might be, well, what about the existing landowner? They already own the property. So if you do a joint venture with them, you don't actually have to purchase it because they already bought it. They bought it a long time ago uh, on a very different price point. So their holding costs and your holding costs are very, very different. So, you know, you look for opportunities to say, well, if I can partner with somebody or find a way to solve Remember those three problems that we had: deposit, serviceability, and liquid cash to run the deal. Where are you short? Well, if I'm if I'm short on deposit, then uh, I guess I could uh, do a, a joint venture with the landowner and say, "Well, why don't I develop your land? I don't need to come up with a deposit." Um, if, if in that instance, I don't need the serviceability either because I don't need to go to the bank to get the loan because he already owns it. So we're, we're looking at how do we plug those three things when, we, when we're actually short. Um, the other way to do that is through private loans or private money where, you know, friends, family, network, colleagues, uh, etc. might have some surplus funds that they go, hey, Tyrone, you're a nice guy, you look like you'd know what you're doing. Um, would you like some because I, you know, it's sitting over here in this piggy bank, not doing much for me at the moment. And it looks like you can make my money work a little bit harder for me. Right. So, you know, partnering with people to say, Well, if I'm short on maybe the liquid cash to run the deal, maybe I only need to borrow 100k. Right. Um, If I'm short on the deposit, I might need to borrow three or 400k. Right. But we're borrowing it for a short period of time. um, And so when we we borrow small amounts of money on a short period of time, the, I guess the the cost to us uh, is proportionate to the profit. We're going to make very, very low. Okay. Um, now, whenever we get into, I guess the, the joint venture scenarios, we tend to be talking about doing profit splits. So whatever the profit is, we're going to, we're going to split that with the person who's doing the joint venture. Whenever we talk, private loans, they tend to be more from an interest rate perspective. Um, But the interest rates are up there. Okay, so, you know, if you're used to, uh, you know, 12 odd months ago, we were we're at two and three percent loans. Uh, Now we're now we're at sixes and sevens. Uh, But when we're doing private loans, you know, they could be 10, 15, 20. I I have loaned money out at 35 percent before. Right. Uh, yes. So that sounds like a really scary number but 35% of what and for how long?
0: That's right and remember 35% per annum as well potentially and it could only be for maybe for three months you know. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you Rob, I've seen and done this multiple times and people balk at it but then you go okay it might be only a small portion of the actual large amount. You might be needing say you know two mil and only out of the two million, you're shortfall of 200,000. So you're only lending against for 200,000. So putting it in perspective, it's actually a small amount.
1: Your hypothetical before was probably a little unrealistic. Let's say a million to purchase, a million to construct, uh, and we're going to sell it for, for three million. Okay. Right. So, you know, uh, give or take, there's there's a million dollars profit in there. So nice, simple, easy scenario. Where there's there's a million dollars profit in there and you've got a shortfall of say two hundred thousand dollars if you paid a a, let's just let's exaggerate it let's say a 20 percent interest rate okay you're probably going to pay forty thousand dollars in interest on that on that money over over a 12 month period but you're making a million bucks And I think a lot of people see the interest rate at 20% and go, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? That's ridiculous. But they forget about the million bucks. So what we want to do is we want to start to treat these things uh, as line items within a feasibility, as you touched on and a cost of doing business. So you couldn't have made that million dollars unless you paid that money. And so it's only fair and reasonable that that you are, uh, I guess, rewarding someone who's sharing risk with you in a deal, let's face it, um, and they could have put that money somewhere much safer. Uh, so, it's only fair if if they're sharing the risk, they should also share the reward.
0: It's really good that you pointed that out. Um, to put things in perspective, we will try and compare dollar value versus, say, a percentage. When you take the percentage and convert it to a dollar value, as we said, you know, you're making a million dollars. And spending only an extra twenty thousand extra, it actually makes more sense. Compare it like that's almost yeah you know, apples versus apples rather than apples versus oranges. So it's just putting things in perspective because ultimately, if you if you think that the deal is very very profitable, and you know you got to get it across the line, no doubt you'd do whatever you can to make it work. And I've seen it happen multiple times with developers, and it's quite common. So people you know don't need to be worried about that too much, I guess. Um, yeah, but also I, I guess what, one thing we want to mention what we're t- discussing about, especially with private lending as well, you just got to be very, very wary about this because um, there are also some rules and regulations and, and governing bodies out there. And we're not giving any advice here. All we're just saying is just to be very wary and just be aware that you know there are ASICs and APRA regulations around the type of capital raising, and you've just got to be very cautious about that and know that there are certain rules that you've got to follow.
1: Always, always, always get accounting advice and also get legal advice on anything, especially when you're trying to borrow money. Uh, You want to have the right, I guess, legal structures in place, the right terms and conditions on your loan documents or your joint venture documents. Uh, And the way you promote to raise the money, uh, you have to be very, very careful that you are not seen to be in the business of raising capital, okay? So if you're in the business of raising capital, that triggers, like you said, ASIC rules and APRA regulations about all this compliance that you need to be doing uh, so it's really easy when it's friends and family they already know you that you know you, you're very well introduced but if you send an email blast out to 10,000 people and go hey you can I have some money uh, you know that can that can be or in a Facebook community or things like that um, you know that that could be seen to be capital raising so that can trigger all sorts of things so you've got to be super careful in how you raise it um, but before anyone lends you money um i guess one of the things is that a lot of people they've heard the expression if you've got the, the you know if you've got the deal the money will come but they don't think about that uh until they actually have the deal and at that point They've got time pressures on the deal. Um, they're trying to convince somebody that they, it's a good deal to invest in. They're trying to convince people that you're the right person to invest with. A lot of people. A lot of times, you don't know them very well. Uh, and then, then you try to put the pressures of those on top. Then you go, oh, by the way, you also need to uh, make sure that you've done your tax returns so the financier can actually assess your your loans well. Uh, you also need to review my joint venture document or my loan document. Uh, You also need to review the information memorandum of the deal so you're putting all this pressure on them in this really short compressed timeline and you're going to scare people away.
0: So, it takes time and remember, you know, building relationships doesn't happen overnight and no one's going to lend you money, you know, tomorrow. You got to actually and it's probably actually not a bad idea if you are looking to consider development and you're looking at finding deals to maybe just start building relationships now and by the time you find that deal you know by then hopefully you've got that good relationship in place and you let you you know people know
1: another one of my rules of 3 if before anybody will lend you any money they need to know like and trust you right so building those relationships as you touched on before is super important to say look a lot of the time people are happy to invest voluntarily you don't have to ask people but they don't know you're a property developer start talking about it at work start over the water cooler or over lunch, when people are starting to, to say, hey, what'd you do on the weekend? Tell them, oh, I went to a networking event, you know, or, uh, "I, you know, I was out uh, trawling the streets for, for deals or, you know, I did my suburb analysis in order to, to prove that this area is the area I want to farm in. When you start having those conversations, people will invite themselves in and they'll start to say, well, that looks like you're doing a whole bunch of work and you clearly know what you're doing. How do I get involved? Right. That's the kind of person you want to work with as opposed to somebody who knows nothing about it, has no no level of interest and you're trying to convince them that, hey, I can give you this really great return. Don't worry about the risk, um, you know. <laughs> bad, 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 bad. Please don't do that.
0: And that, that's the thing. Like, I think a lot of us, even me included when I first started, I was saying to myself, who would actually want to, you know, invest with me? Who would want to lend money with me? Because I don't feel like, you know, this is the tall poppy syndrome is that, you know, I don't feel like I've known enough. I don't have any runs on the board, et cetera. But, you know, I think it's it's changing that mindset. It's a a limiting belief, which I also discovered over time. And I think sometimes when we think about it, and and maybe it's raised from family, parents, or whoever it is, that we got to do everything with ourselves, with our own money. And that's not true. You know, I think we've discovered over the time that, you know, you're probably hearing from us because we've done it. But I guess it's building that confidence and, and, and overcoming those limiting beliefs. Did you have any sort of other ones that you've heard about as well that could potentially?
1: There's a ton of limiting beliefs out there. So, so just on that who would invest in me uh, scenario, I guess if we play that out in a lot of detail, I've seen this many times, including my own journey. My deal number one for me, I needed a money partner, okay? Uh, and, my belief was that nobody would invest in me until I'd proven that I could run a deal on my own, right? And that ended up being the biggest fallacy on earth. Um, The reality is that people would invest in you because they know, like, and trust you. They know how you deal with things under pressure. They know that you're a nice person. They know you've got integrity. They know you're going to do the right thing. What they don't know is you're a property developer. They don't know that you've done all the homework, that you've done all the research, that you've done everything humanly possible because they would much rather invest in someone they know than a complete stranger that they have no idea about their level of integrity and the like. And, and my encouragement um, to your audience is to say, stop making it about you, right? It's, it's not about they won't invest in me. It's about them. It's about what problem are you solving for that person, Right they haven't got the time to go and research what areas to go to. They haven't got the time to to work out. Is this a developable site? They don't have the knowledge or the skills to actually do that. And they've got a nest egg that's sitting there that is doing nothing, might be earning two or three percent maximum in the bank. You're doing them a disservice to to not allow them to invest in you. Right. Uh, If you can take that approach and go, well, of course, I want my friends and family to succeed as much as I do, right? Uh, because now I'm actually doing them a favour, as opposed to, you know, I guess being greedy and going, "Hey, what what can I have? Uh, how do I how do I serve uh, all the people around me? If I make it about them, then they will want to make it about me."
0: Thank you to Rob Flux, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405105074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call.